Amen. That's worth singing about, isn't it? I think if that went one more verse, I was going to join the choir. That, that, is, that is good news. We're going to continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of God's Word. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to be reading from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Uh, we're studying together through uh, John's epistle. And uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My aim this morning is when you walk out of here, above all things, you're going to be grateful that Jesus Christ is your advocate. If you are a believer, and if you've not yet uh, surrendered your life to Jesus, my aim is to, to encourage you that there is life to be found in Jesus. He's an advocate. Uh, that's, what these passages, that's what this passage proclaims. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the blessing of hearing your word. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless your holy name. And I'm praying from this passage that we see that there are so many benefits from knowing, trusting, loving, serving, and obeying Jesus. Help us not to forget all the benefits of being in Christ. And Lord, thank you for the blessing of being able to sing things that are eternally true. The cup has not been removed from Jesus and he has paid it all. It is in Christ alone our hope is found. And you are a king who's going to hold us fast. Your amazing grace, it does cover us. And so now help us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we think carefully about what this passage says. I'm asking that what the Holy Spirit intended for us to know from these verses is what we focus on, believe, and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 John, we're in a series of sermons entitled Walking in the Light and have come here to chapter 2, uh, and we'll walk through these things uh, together uh, this morning. You might have heard this story this week uh, about uh, a guy named Keith Stonehouse. He lives up in Chesterfield Township, Michigan, and uh, late last week, around 9 o'clock at night, delivery drivers just started showing up at his house. There were deliveries of pizza, next chili cheese fries, next shrimp, then salads, then chicken pita wraps, and multiple orders of ice cream. And he was completely perplexed why all of this food was arriving until he remembered his son, who he had just put to bed about an hour before, had been on his phone. So he went and found his phone, and we turned it over and looked at the screen, and right as he looked at the screen, there popped up a fraud alert 
declining a $400 order for more pizza. And that's when he opened up the Grubhub app on his phone to find that his son had placed $1,000 worth of food orders. So he went into his son, who was supposed to be asleep, and before he could say a word, his son asked, Dad, have the pepperoni pizzas arrived yet? Grubhub somehow learned about what happened uh, and sent the family $1,000 worth of gift cards. So it all, all's well that ends well, as they say. Now, that's a pretty good summary of how we can kind of think about God's love and grace. That is sort of a gift card of grace that it doesn't really matter what we did. He'll actually just give us more to keep doing, if that makes sense. And Paul asks it this way, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And that's a little bit what John's dealing with here. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, because you can get this in your mind. God's a God of love and God's a God of grace. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. But it's a little dangerous, and by a little dangerous, I mean a whole lot dangerous if we say, well, he's going to forgive me anyway, so I'll just do what I want. Well, here's the deal, though, friends. The gospel changes what you want if it's really true in your life. God changes you from the inside out, but the key word is he does change you. God is a God of forgiveness, but we're studying along. That's why we want to base what we believe on what his word says. If we confess our sins, this is 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You notice though it doesn't stop there. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to think through these things. What, what do I do when and if I sin? If I'm still sinning, does that mean I'm not really in a right relationship with God? It might be helpful for us just to define sin, by the way. Sin is putting self, the exaltation of self, above God and others. Every time we choose to do that, that's kind of the heart of, of sin. So he's just told us, verse 8, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. So let's think through these things to, together. So let's start here, just taken from verse 1. Got three points, like is often the case. So we'll start with this one. As we mature in our faith, we're going to become more lovingly patient with others, and especially with others who are younger than ourselves. I'm taking that from the first phrase there in verse 1. My little children. Now remember, when John writes this letter, he's uh, probably in his 80s. So he's uh, a disciple of Jesus, been apostle of Jesus, 50 some odd years since the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, John has seen some things, done some things, and he's got some wisdom and experience. But I want you to notice the way his heart's disposition is for those who are coming behind him. My little children. He's, he's gotten to the age where he can refer to just about everybody in, the, in that kind of phrase, right? He's an older man, and what I so appreciate about John is he's not fed up or turned off or avoiding those that are younger than him. He's got deep spiritual concern for them, and this is important for us because we kind of live in a generation where the generations can be at odds, right? 
It's all the millennials' fault. Okay, boomer, right? I mean, that's what's going on in, in the world. But that's not how it should be in the church. We need each other. I heard one pastor say one time, and I, I quote him a lot, the older generations edify the younger, and the younger generations energize the older. So in a healthy church, like any family, you want to aim to have multiple generations. So it's not ever going to be good if in a church family it's all older folks or if it's all younger folks. We really need each other. The, the fun part about my little family is we're a multiple genera- uh, multi- multi-generational family just in our immediate family. I've had this blessing of Julie and I having a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and an almost 11-month-old. And I just have to tell you, it's been one of the greatest, greatest blessings of my life to see my older ch- children, which are all four of them, by the way, just take to a baby girl. There's some days I just sit in my living room and I just watch. Can I tell you, this baby has been pretty disruptive in all the best ways to our life. And we're just kind of tracking along and doing what we were doing, and then new life. She's loud. She can't tell time. She doesn't know it's 3 a.m. She's a little messy. But man, we love her to pieces. And that's, that's what John's getting at. Like he, he knows it's not that long before he's not going to be among this church. And notice how loving and we could say tender he is. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So it's not just that he cares about the younger generation. It's that he cares about their spiritual well-being. He cares about the health of their, their souls. And you know where, what else? He'd heard that phrase from somebody else. Do you know who it was? My little children. He heard that phrase from Jesus in the upper room. My little children. Do you know? Yet a little while I'm with you. Isn't that interesting? Both Jesus and now John use that phrase, my little children, in a time of their life where they knew their time was short. Jesus knew it. I mean, John says that. Jesus, knowing his time was at hand, is about to return to the Father. He uses that phrase, my little children. And what I think I, we can take from that is when he see the finish line, some things come into focus. I think a great gift of spiritual wisdom is when you can see the finish line, even, even if it's decades away. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you just say, right now, whatever's going to be important in my life at the end, may it be important right now. And what seems to be the case here with John is, what's, what's important? The people he loves and their spiritual condition, right? My little children, hey, hey, if you're a parent with children, is it anything more important to you than the spiritual well-being of your kids? I mean, isn't that what you think about and pray about and long for and hope for most? Well, that, that ought to be the case for us as a, as a church family, right? So, so John starts with this, my little children. So I want you to know what he says next is in the context of, I care about you, I love you, you matter to me, and I want you to know some stuff about Jesus, right? Hey, God, those of you coming behind me, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is righteous. I want you to know that he's an advocate. I want you to know that he's made propitiation for sins. So, so that's first, as we mature in our faith, we become more lovingly patient 
with others. I think this is uh, worth considering. If you're over the age of 40 and you're in the room, I want you to divide your age in half. Hopefully, I can, I can still pull that off. Not great at math, but I can do that. Although I'm an odd number, so it's a happy. Anyway, 43 years old. I need to be investing in the spiritual good of somebody half my age. Don't we see this all through the scripture in Paul doing this? I'm going to pass the baton to Timothy, to Titus. And it's hard. Paul says, hey, I, I, I'm paraphrasing him. I spent years with so-and-so, but he's departed. He's in love with the world. He's in Thessalonica. So it can be difficult. And then if you're under the age of 40, you get to multiply your age by two. And you need to know some people in the church family who are that age. You need to glean from their wisdom. Know them by name. One of, sometimes one of the strongest dividing walls in, a, in, in the culture, and then, in, and then it can bleed over into the church, is generations staying apart. We need each other. How many of you can remember learning some things from your grandma? Um, the most unhurried, we've been talking about this a lot in, in, uh, in 2023, haven't we? The most unhurried people I've ever been around were my grandparents. And it's part of what we're talking about here. You just learn over time, everything you're kind of all worked up and obsessing over, it's not that big a deal. I can remember going into my mom's, mom's kitchen. And you know what? I always felt, I just felt loved. She wasn't irritated with me. She wasn't in a hurry. Remember, love is patient. Another word for patient is unhurried. Love's never in a hurry. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then some of us, I, maybe I shouldn't do this. I, I was going to include me in the younger. Some of the younger need to maybe be a little better at listening. Take an opportunity. Ask questions. So, so that's number one, right? Don't, don't you know, if you're at that church in Ephesus that John's writing to here, that people love to sit with John? Tell me some things, John. Now, I know John's an apostle, so he can say, yeah, man, we were on the boat. We were going under, and Jesus spoke, and the waves. I mean, he know, he's seen some stuff. But if you've walked with Jesus, you've seen some stuff, haven't you? You've gone through the fire, and you said, he's with me. The church has to have the testimony of those who've gone before and found him faithful, and that is who John is for, for that church. So uh, he, he has interest in them, but it's a spiritual interest. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So point number one, as we mature in our faith, we become more lovingly, lovingly excuse me, patient with others and concerned about their spiritual well-being. Point number two is this, and this is really important. Sin is no longer your master, but it remains your enemy. I'll say it again. Sin is no longer your master, but it is still your enemy. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, again, John's writing followers of Jesus. You can't make that statement to someone who doesn't follow Jesus. In other words, you don't have the resources to stop sinning if you don't follow Jesus. And here's how I can prove it. You ready? Just do it. Just stop sinning. So, so, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got some amazing resources. The Holy Spirit's alive in you. You're overcoming some things. And it is now possible to, to overcome sin. See, 
the gospel, when we believe it, it doesn't free us from the fight against sin. It frees us to fight against sin. So you say, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So let's ask the question, writing what things? What things? Well, he's referring to some of the stuff he's already said in the letter, right? So let's think about this one. Uh, What we've highlighted so far in our studies is that John is saying there's nothing more precious, nothing more valuable in all the world than for you to have fellowship with God. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So stopping sinning is not about I just got to modify my behavior. It's about I'm now in a relationship with a God who loves me, has redeemed me, is rescuing me, and I don't want anything to hinder that fellowship with him. So I'll give you an illustration. I know I've used it before. It's a story about me and my dad. I was a little bit of a strange kid, I'll just admit that. And I grew up in Fayetteville, which is a military town, so I was in this neighborhood where kids were coming and going all the time. I have two older brothers, and at this particular season of my life, with three boys, three's a crowd, I was in this, I was about seven, eight years old, and uh, they preferred to hang out with people other than me. And I kind of get it, but it is what it is. So I would go in my backyard and had G.I. Joe men. Anybody with me? Loved my G.I. Joe men, and I would dig holes and build forts which I think about this now, and I'm like, I don't have any idea why my parents ever let me do this. But there was a movie in the mid-'80s that came out called The Goonies, and it was all about a child looking for a treasure, and it just got my imagination going. So when I'm digging holes, I got one-eyed Willie on the brain, and I was like, and I think at school we had just read something about Blackbeard and buried treasure. I know it's crazy, but I'm seven years old, and I get this notion in my mind that there's treasure buried in my backyard. So I just start digging and digging and digging. And then the tip of my shovel hits something solid. And I get it in my mind that it's, that it's buried treasure. So I take my, and about four, five times, and I pop it, pop it, pop it. And I, friends, had found the septic tank in our backyard. Buried, not treasure. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> and had broken it, busted it. And, it was, and I'm talking about a mess. So do you know what I did? Started covering that hole up as fast as I could. Covered it up, covered it up. Shoved it all over it and try, tried to pat it. And uh, without going into a lot of details, it was just evident I had really busted it and stuff was seeping up. So I did not know that standing in the kitchen looking into the backyard was my dad. And he had seen it happen. So I walked inside, and there my dad was standing there, and he said, Brandon, everything all right? Did you know most kids are terrible liars, but they think they're really good liars? So I said, uh, immediately, I'm anxious, I'm nervous, and I said, yeah, everything's great. And I turned around, and I went back outside, got on my bike, rode over to my friend's house, and I stayed away as long as I could. The streetlight turned on, and that was the sign, in those days, it's time to go home. So I go home, sneak in the house, nervous, anxious, try to go to bed, uh, sleep, hardly a wink at all, get up the next morning and try to get out of the house to get to the bus stop as fast as I can. Now for stretches during the day at school, my mind is occupied by other things, but then it would just come back. I was able to be distracted for a little bit, but then to come back, there's the mess at the house. They're going to find out. They're going to know. My dad had told me in the past, stop or, you know, if anything ever comes up, you need my help with, come, come to me. And I covered it up. But the question, was it really covered up? Absolutely not, man. I'm miserable. 
I get off the school bus, and my dad's car is parked in the driveway. He's not supposed to be home at this time of day. I think I got a solid two hours to relax and maybe come up with some sort of explanation. And then when I walk in the house, it's almost as if he was waiting for me. He stood in the living room, and he said, how's your day been? What do you think I said? I muffled a one-word answer. It's been fine. And then he asked a question I wasn't prepared for. Is there anything that happened in the yard yesterday that you think I should know about? I couldn't even look him in the eye. Do you know what I mean? I tried to come up with anything, anything to explain what happened. And like most brothers, I started to try to pin it on one of my other brothers. Tried to find somebody to blame, a neighbor, the dog, anything. And before I could come up with anything, he said, I want you to know I know what happened. And I started crying. Didn't I tell a story last week when I was crying? But I'm just a crying boy. At the... And I'm sobbing. And then he said, I saw it when it happened. I saw you try to cover it up. I took the day off from work, called the sewage company, paid for it, fixed it. Now, in that illustration, let's think through what John's saying here. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So when I'm digging in the backyard, there probably does come a moment where I say, I probably dug too big a hole and I need to stop, right? This isn't going anywhere good. But then after I busted the septic tank, question, did I lose my relationship with my dad? Did he stop being my dad? The answer is, is no, right? I don't walk in the house and he said, get out and never come back. It's not what happened. I didn't lose my relationship. What did I lose? I lost my fellowship, right? Now, to even be near him, I'm anxious, nervous, scared, and I want to be anywhere but there. So do you see, see what John's saying is, I started off by saying to you, there's nothing greater than fellowship with God. That's what you're created for. It's what you're made for. Don't settle for something shallow and, and, and less than knowing God for who he really is. So, so I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but, verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Now, had I disobeyed my dad? 100%. Had I made a decision not to listen to him? With the result being that I had created a mess beyond the scope of my ability to fix? Absolutely. I couldn't fix it, so I opted to try to cover it up. And that's what Genesis 3 says. It's what sin is. It's what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to be God instead of God. They created a huge mess, and then they tried to cover it up. But my dad saw to it that it was fixed. Now again, when I disobeyed, I didn't lose my relationship with my dad. But I did lose my fellowship. You see, you don't lose your salvation when you sin, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. It's what David says when he had an, a, a, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And he writes those Psalms, right? When he was finally in repentance, came back to the Lord. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. 
You don't lose your status as a son and daughter, or daughter if you're a follower of Jesus, but you do lose the intimacy of your relationship. Real, genuine, authentic, deep fellowship with God is better than pretend fellowship. Isn't that what John's been saying? Now, if we say we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So what else has John said that if we'll pay attention, we, we might not sin? Well, he's told us that God forgives and cleanses. That means you can be forgiven from your sin and freed from it. Amen? The only sin you'll ever defeat in your life is the sin you're fully confident has been forgiven by Jesus. I mean, that you get freed up from trying to pay the debt back. You can't pay it back. But that's not the same as saying it can't be paid. Somebody can pay it. And that's exactly where John goes next. So if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this is point number three. Last point, this really important one. Remember the scope of Jesus' provision for you when you do sin. So scope, a word I'm going to use is comprehensive. So John points out three things about Jesus that I want you to see. First of all, that Jesus is our advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Some of you already know this. The Greek word is paraclete, right? If you know anything about the word, who in the New Testament is that word used most frequently of? It's actually the Holy Spirit. It's the paraclete, John 15. You want to go read that this afternoon. What's the word mean? Mediator, helper, comforter. But Jesus is here called paraclete. But if you know John 15 well, you'll, you'll remember. Jesus said, when I go, I'll send you another paraclete, right? So Jesus is telling them, I'm an advocate and helper. I'm going to send you another one. But let's remember for a moment that, that Jesus is also an advocate, a helper, an intercessor, a mediator. Have you ever needed help and went to someone to give you help, but you realized they couldn't really help you? Does that make sense? And you're really putting a lot of stock in, hey, if I just go talk to so-and-so, they'll really help. What a paraclete is, is a helper who knows what he's doing. Never, ever will Jesus ever say, I don't know what we should do about this. But in particular, with this issue, what are we talking about? When you sin, what are you to do? You're to turn to an advocate. Now, friends, again, we talk about this a lot, but, but we talk about it a lot because it's so important. You'll always want to turn to other things to make things right, to fix things, to cover it up. Who's the first person you usually turn to? You usually turn to yourself. Sin's distort, distorted us in a way that we, instead of turning away from ourselves unto the Lord, we turn away from the Lord and unto ourselves. John's telling us to do exactly the opposite, to turn to him. An advocate who is one who is with you for your good. Remember the prodigal? We looked at him last week. That was his plan. I'll pay off this debt. I'll go back and I'll work for my dad until I pay the debt off. But you remember the heart. So what kind of reception will I get? This is where most of us get. I can't believe I'm still dealing with this sin. I thought by now, anybody got some stuff in your life? You said, by now I thought I would be past it, over it, victorious. And yet still here it is. And so you get in your mind that my father's fed up with me. 
Did your father ever tell you that? No, but somebody did. Who did? The accuser. The accuser of the brethren, right? And, and he starts to twist all this stuff around. But let's see the order. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ. Then we're told the righteous. So first of all, we're told Jesus is our advocate. Next, we're told that he's righteous. John just used that word in verse 9, so I want to talk about it, what it means. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just. So righteous means that he's pure, he's holy, he's sinless. But this, honestly, if we think about it carefully, raises a big problem. So we're just told that Jesus is righteous and we're sinful. And that's a big problem. It means that if there's going to be a solution to the problem, it's going to have to be a righteous solution. Only a righteous person can cleanse us from unrighteousness, right? So if you're bankrupt and a bankrupt person says, can you pay my debt? What's your answer? No, I got my own debt. Or if you're physically exhausted and wiped out and another physically exhausted person comes to you and says, can you carry me? What would you say? No, I can't. If you're in a famine and you're starving and you've got no food and another person in the famine who also has no food comes to you and says, can you feed me? What is your answer? No. So if Jesus is fully righteous, he doesn't overlook unrighteousness, doesn't wink at it, doesn't say no big deal, doesn't sweep it under the rug. So if it makes sense to your heart, the only solution for our unrighteousness has to be a righteous solution for our unrighteousness. And that's where he goes next. He's our advocate. He's our righteous. He's, he's righteous. And he's our propitiation. Your translation of verse 3, that word that I'm reading, he is the propitiation for our sins. Maybe you have a different word there. So let's talk about it for a moment. And I want you to see that all these three things go together. Hang with me for a couple more minutes. That Jesus is our advocate, he's righteous, and he's our propitiation. So what is, it, what is a propitiation? It's a noun, right? And it, and it means something that makes atonement. So can you think in your mind, I don't have it to put on the screen, but I want you to think in your mind of the word atonement. We usually pronounce it atonement, but if you look at it, you can also see it kind of, you can kind of read it at one mint. That means here's two things that used to be separated, divided, not cohesive or together, and something happened that those two things that were separated have been Atonement has been made so that now they're at one meant, right? Makes sense. Atonement means that God's righteous wrath against sin has been satisfied. Because here's the big question of the Bible. It's not the big question of the culture, I get that. But the big question of the Bible is, how does a righteous God eradicate sin without eradicating sinners? We all want God to handle the evil in the world up to the point where we say, I'm evil, right? 
Then how is God going to handle all the evil in the world and me survive that? The answer is propitiation. Specifically, Jesus. Specifically, Jesus on the cross. Saying there is a debt to be paid and I'm going to pay it. That's what the cross is. That's what's happening there. Is uh, someone who's not bankrupt saying, I'll pay. Someone who's not unrighteous saying, I'll pay. He's the propitiation for our sins. John Stott put it this way. The Father's provision for the sinning Christian is His Son, who possesses a threefold qualification. His righteous character, His propitiatory death, and His heavenly advocacy. Each depends on the others. He could not be our advocate in heaven today if He had not died on the cross to be the propitiation for our sins. And His propitiation would not have been effective if in His life and character He had not been Jesus Christ the righteous one, right? Does that make sense? So if you're in a famine with no food, someone who's also in the famine without food cannot feed you, but someone who has plenty of bread can. And that's who Jesus said he is. I am the bread of life. If you hunger, you come to me. If you're weary and exhausted, someone else cannot carry you. But Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're in 1 John, look in chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that He had loved us. And look at what the Bible is saying is the demonstration of God's love for you. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is why we say... Jesus Christ is not the best way to be reconciled to God. He's the only way. There is not propitiation anywhere else. So while it's narrow in that scope, Jesus said that. The kingdom of God, the way in is narrow. It's also trustworthy. Well, let's also notice that John emphasizes that this isn't a message that just comes to us to bless us and we say we're so thankful for it. It's a message entrusted to us and as John says, not just for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, if we believe this, we carry it to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? The great commandments and the great commission, they always go together. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And in loving of your neighbor, you're going to fulfill the great commission. You're going to be devoted to it. Because what he says next is, if you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. We'll talk more about that next time, Lord willing. So I'll give you a couple of concluding questions and applications. And the word of God's helpful, isn't it? So we'll just take our major points and turn them into applications. Questions. Number one, right now, are you increasingly loving towards others and concerned about their spiritual well-being? It's the same way of asking, are you maturing in your faith, right? It says you're maturing, if you're becoming more like Jesus, 
You have a heart that's more like his, as we see here. The reason John says what he says is he had heard and believed what Jesus had said. Jesus in the upper room said, my little children. John writes it here. We live in a generation where you're going to be told a thousand times between now and dinner tomorrow to be on edge angry and frustrated towards somebody else. You'll be told that a thousand times. Kind of the air we breathe. You're going to be told a thousand times. Everything wrong in the world is their fault. You're going to be told that a thousand times. And John sits there, 80 some odd years old, and says, my little children, I'm most concerned about your spiritual good. Is that true of your life right now? Second question is, are you you fighting sin on the basis of fellowship with God? Great example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Potiphar's wife comes to him over and over and over, tempting him into sexual sin over and over and over. And Joseph's response to her is, I couldn't do that. I might lose my job. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I can't do this. Somebody might find out. He says, how could I do this against my God? Potiphar's wife, you got nothing to offer me that I don't have scores more of joy and satisfaction in knowing God. And you think about what Joseph had been through in his life. Like, yeah, brothers betrayed me, stuck in prison. I'm going to have a little bit of me time now. No, that's, that's, not, his, that's not his perspective. Um, the only thing that helps you, enables you over time to consistently overcome sin is fellowship with God. That's it. You'll find an excuse for, for, to justify anything you do unless you know God for who he really is. And it's out of that fellowship that you say, man, I, I'm not having anything hinder my fellowship. I don't see God's grace as a license to sin all the more. I see God's grace as an opportunity to finally overcome some stuff so that I can be about his purpose in the, in the world. And quickly, two more things. Are you trusting the full scope of the work of Jesus on your behalf? The gospel gives you two things at once, a whole lot of humility and a whole lot of confidence at the same time. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence that God can be trusted. Jesus is righteous. He's my advocate. Good news about Jesus is he doesn't lie, right? Sometimes we think about that as an advocate. If I've got an attorney, he's got to kind of twist the story. Guess what? He said up front, you are sinful. Guilty as charged. Here's the catch, though. The penalty's been paid. Who did that? Your advocate did. Isn't that glorious news? What's the evidence? Jesus. The cross. It's covered. And then last, are are you joyfully devoted to the commandment to take the gospel unto the nations? Just read what he says here, and then we'll close. By this we know that we've come to know him. Why is that important? All right, just hang with me. 30 more seconds. If you belong to Jesus, how do you know you belong to Jesus? Think very carefully how you would answer that question. He doesn't say, here's how we know we belong to him. I walked down the aisle 30 years ago. That's not what he says. It's not what he says. I once went to camp when I was nine and I prayed something. That's not what he says. And be biblical about your understanding of yourself. It doesn't even really, if we can just say this to our generation that I live in and I'm a part of, 
The testimony isn't really what you would say. It's about what you're doing. Does that make sense? Are you keeping his commandments? Now, let's guard uh, every source of truth is a potential for error. He does not say if you keep his commandments, you'll be saved. He says if you're saved, you keep his commandments. Amen? It's two different things and they're widely different. But if you belong to him, this is how you know. I'm not saying that you're keeping them perfectly, but is your heart set on obedience to him because of fellowship with him? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Can we just be specific about it? Whoever says, I know him, but does not love his enemies is a liar. Whoever says, I know him, but isn't leveraging their life for the Great Commission is a liar. The truth is not in him. What is it that Jesus said to his disciples? Go and teach them to observe everything I command. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, that's where we're going to end, but that verse is going to be the pathway to what we'll do in the next several Sundays, that if we're going to follow him, we're going to walk in the way that he did. So we'll talk about that. How did he actually walk and what did he actually do? And are we going in that direction? Because here's the, here's the reality. Our accuser, the enemy, doesn't matter what... It doesn't mind what we do so long as we don't do that. Amen? So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray together. Then we have a time of response. Because we don't want to be hearers of the word only and deceive ourselves. So I'm going to pray for you. you got a burden, a concern, just carrying a load, heavy load today. And you say, man, I'd love for someone to pray with me, to listen to me. That's what the response time is for. It'd be my joy to, to pray with you. But I always tell you, on Sundays, I'm in no rush. I'm not just going to reserve the response time to, to this one period of time. It would be my joy to sit and talk with you. If this passage we've studied this morning has raised some questions in your heart and your mind, there's nothing more important than that. But would you bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Friends, you're never going to listen carefully and obey the Lord and live to regret it. You will never do that. Are you increasingly loving towards other people? Are you fighting against the known sins of your life on the basis of fellowship with God? This morning, are you trusting the full scope, the full scope of God's provision for you in Jesus? That he's your advocate. He is thoroughly righteous. And he's propitiation for your sins. You can trust him. And are you joyfully devoted to the Great Commission? Father, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I thank you for these verses that we've studied this morning. And I'm asking now that your Holy Spirit would would reveal honest answers to the questions we've brought up and exalt Jesus above all things, that he is our righteous advocate. Be glorified in these moments. Help us to make decisions, to think clearly about the implications of what we've studied so we can really live the life that Jesus has made a way for us to have. We pray this in his name. Amen.